The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. But now what I thought we would do is go back and pick up um, some of the individuals, some of the key people in history, in church history, and study them a little bit more in depth. And I don't think that you're going to be any more satisfied at the end of this hour in looking at Augustine that we covered everything that there is to cover with him either, but uh, rather that he would be a motivating force or factor to you. Uh, we're going to begin our look at Augustine in the year 410. That was the year that uh, the eternal city... Rome was sacked um, by the Goths. Alaric and the Goths came in and they sacked the city. That was kind of unthinkable. Now, if you can imagine, you know, when Jesus was born and lived and died, the Roman Empire just looked absolutely untouchable. Uh, and it was for many years. As a matter of fact, uh, the Roman Empire is the most uh, uh, powerful and uh, the most enduring human empire that the world has ever seen. Uh, but all things come to, the, to an end, and we've learned that from the book of Daniel, haven't we? That empires rise and then they fall uh, because they're based on a human pedestal, a human basis, uh, and it happened to Rome as well. Now, in the year 410, when Alaric came in with the Goths, he didn't destroy the city, he just plundered it a little bit. Um, uh, it wouldn't be another 66 years um, before the city was totally destroyed and the last Western Roman emperor was deposed by the Germans. But St. Jerome, who lived at the times, Jerome was the one who uh, translated the Bible into Latin, and that became the Bible for uh, Europe, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, he was stunned by the news that Rome had, um, had been sacked. And he said, if Rome can perish, then what can be safe? Now, that's a pretty significant question, isn't it? They, basically, what, where is the solid ground on which we can we can build. I mean, everything's moving. I mean, the world is, is in upheaval, he's saying, Jerome did. If Rome can be sacked, there's nothing solid. Well, Augustine was living at the same time, and he wanted to respond to this, not just to Jerome's statement, but to some certain accusations that Rome had been weakened by Christianity. Realize that it had just been 90 years or some odd before that that a Roman emperor, Constantine, had declared himself to be a Christian. And basically, in effect, you know, the, Rome was, it was fine while we had the pagans running the thing, but now we've got Christians, we've become weak. And so Augustine was motivated to, to respond to that, and he wrote his great work, City of God. The City of God is a response to this, and it's the first truly organized and integrated theology of history in which he's looking out at history and trying to understand what's going on. And it was really a significant thing. Augustine was 55 years old. He was in the prime of his ministry, and he wrote City of God, uh, as a result, thinking about what, uh, uh, what history was. And in effect, he was saying that there's, there's two cities. There's a city of God and there's a city of man or of the devil. And that basically the eternal city cannot be touched by human events. It can't be touched by the rise and fall of human empires. Rather, God is building his city uh, in every generation through the advance of the church through the preaching of the gospel, through the conversion of individuals. He's building the city of God, brick by brick, living stone by living stone. And nothing can change that. No current event, uh, nothing you could read in a newspaper is going to touch the city of God. It's absolutely secure and safe. Even if Rome falls, the city of God will endure and will continue. And he was right. 
And it's really a remarkable thing. Rome did fall in the west, continued in the east for another approximately thousand years. But there was going to be a tremendous amount of upheaval in, in, uh, in Rome. And, and actually in his own life, 20 years later, August 28th, 430, uh, Augustine died. But as he died, the city where he was bishop, Hippo, in uh, uh, northern uh, Africa. He was North African, by the way. Uh, I don't have a map here, but you, you know the, how the Italian boot comes down into the, into the Mediterranean, and then there's Sicily, and then just a short jump across is North Africa. And that's where he lived. That's where it's what used to be Carthage. Uh, and the Roman uh, legions conquered Carthage. They sowed its fields with salt, and then they kind of started to rebuild in another area. Uh, a second kind of Roman colony. And eventually there were many Roman citizens. It was a, a Roman area and Augustine was born there and lived most of his life in North Africa. Anyway, as he was uh, dying, uh, 80,000 vandals were uh, sweeping toward his city to besiege it. Now, they're not vandals the way you think of when you think of a vandal. A vandal is somebody that uh, sprays uh, slogans on walls or breaks windows and all that. The point is all that came from history. The Vandals were just one of the many uh, barbarian tribes that were in power at the time. And 80,000 of them had swept across the Straits of Gibraltar and now were moving across North Africa. And they were about to besiege Hippo. And as a matter of fact, some of his elders gathered around him uh, and they used Jesus' words from Matthew 10, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. So basically, uh, especially since there were the news that two or three Catholic bishops had been tortured to death, by the vandals, the advice was get out of here. Run for your life. And what he said, uh, what Augustine said is, let not one person dream of holding our ship so cheaply that the sailors, uh, let alone the captain, should desert her in her time of peril. A very courageous man. He was willing to stay there, but God took him before the vandals ever sacked the city. He died. He's a courageous man. I think it's important for us to, to understand the roots of his courage and of his theology of his doctrine. What I propose to do tonight is just to take one theme and run through it uh, with Augustine. There is absolutely no way we can cover this man's life in one hour. Absolutely no way. He's too significant. We're going to talk about that. But what I want to do is I want to talk about his conversion and take the theme of his life, his conversion, namely what it was that gave him power over lust in particular. Sexual sin. He struggled with that. What was it that enabled him to be free from that to serve God, to come to faith in Christ, to walk with God the rest of his life in celibacy? What was it that enabled him to do it? We're going to talk about sovereign joy uh, and the understanding of Augustine, Augustine's doctrine of grace. These things are significant for us uh, even today. Now, there are uh, basically, well, just almost innumerable ways that we still uh, see or feel the influence of Augustine. Uh, absolutely incalculable influence. Christian History Magazine says, after Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. Isn't that amazing? After Jesus and Paul, Augustine's number three. As a matter of fact, there was a group of people about a hundred years after his death uh, who wanted to take his writings and make them part of Scripture, canon. Now realize for us today that would be shocking, but it wasn't very long before that that they had settled on the New Testament canon. And they really felt that uh, Augustine's writings should be held to that standard. I don't think they were at all. Uh, there are contradictions in Augustine's writings. There are struggles and themes that one argues against the other. He was not an inspired writer, but one of the greatest teachers of church history. 
B.B. Uh, Warfield, Benjamin Warfield said, uh, the whole development of Western life in all its phases was powerfully affected by his teaching. And what's remarkable about Augustine is that his teaching has flowed into radically different camps of Christianity. Really, it has. If you look at it, for example, the Roman Catholics look on Augustine as one of their key church fathers. I think the oldest city in the United States is St. Augustine, is the way we pronounce that. It's named after him. It was, it was settled there by the Spanish. Spanish were there in the name of the Catholic uh, church. And so that, that city in, in, in Florida gives us an indication of the honor to which, um, uh, the honor that the Roman Catholic Church gives to St. Augustine. Um, he's probably the most revered church father in the Roman Catholic tradition. And yet, Warfield says, Augustine gave us the Reformation. It's a fascinating thing. Augustine gave us the Reformation. Now, how did he do that? Well, it wasn't just because Luther, Martin Luther, was an Augustinian monk, which he was and read Augustine, uh, Augustine's writings on grace. It was more than that. It was the influence of Augustine's doctrines running through church history right up until that point. Basically, in effect, the Reformation was an argument, some said, between Saint Augustine's doctrine of the church and his doctrine of grace. It's a really fascinating study. Doctrine of the church, infant baptism, the Lord's Supper, um, the papal supremacy, all those aspects that we associate with Roman Catholicism came from Augustine's writings. On the other side, a strong emphasis on the grace of God, saved by grace alone through faith. That came through Augustine too. So in effect, there's themes and tensions in Augustine's writings that have not been resolved. But they just filter down. You've got Roman Catholics looking to Augustine. We've got Protestants as well looking to him as well. Uh, one writer, a modern writer, Agostino Trappe, said this, Augustine was a philosopher, a theologian, a mystic, and a poet all in one. His lofty powers complemented each other and made the man fascinating in a way difficult to resist. He is a philosopher, but not a cold thinker. He's a theologian, but also a master of the spiritual life. He's a mystic, but also a pastor. He's a poet, but also a controversialist. Every reader thus finds something attractive and even over, overwhelming in his writings. Depth of metaphysical intuition, rich abundance of theological proofs, synthetic power and energy, psychological depth shown in spiritual ascents, and a wealth of imagination, sensibility, and mystical fervor. So that's all that you're going to find in Augustine. Uh, another writer uh, spoke of, he, he made uh, studying Augustine a 40-year life work. Forty years he studied. Benedict Groschel was his name. And he was visiting the Augustinian Heritage Institute adjacent to Villanova University in which books by or about Augustine make up the whole library. The whole library. I mean, just thousands of volumes either by or about Augustine. If you, if you look at Augustine's words, all of his words translated into English amount to five million words. Well, what is that? That's about 60... 450 or 500 page volumes, 60 volumes, and that represents about a third of his output. Only about a third to a half of his works have been translated into English, most of them in Latin. Um, so someone once said, anyone who claims, and this was a contemporary of Augustine, anyone who claims to have read everything Augustine wrote is a liar. So, I mean, it's just impossible to read everything he wrote. And this is before the days of computer. He did it with pen and ink. He did this before a printing press. He just wrote and wrote and wrote all the time. And so, obviously, there's just an incredible wealth of things. And this man, Groschel, said, I feel like a man beginning to write a guidebook on the Swiss Alps. 
after 40 years, I can still meditate on one book of the confession uh, during a week-long retreat and come back feeling frustrated that there's still so much gold to mine in those few pages. I, for one, know that I shall never in this life escape from the Augustinian Alps. So my question to you tonight is, is there any value in visiting the Alps for 45 minutes or an hour? You know, I, mean, I think there is. I think it's, it's kind of fun to, to look at a mountain, but just realize we're just getting a tiny little glimpse uh, of all the things that we could study. Now, the key works of Augustine I've listed out there for you, for you to uh, peruse uh, for yourselves. I, if you're going to start and you want to know just what should I read if I want to know something more about Augustine, start with his Confessions. Augustine's Confessions, or the Confession of Augustine, is his spiritual autobiography. Everything in the Confession is written in the second person. It's basically a prayer. It's incredible. It's 350 pages of prayer. What kind of literary discipline did it take to stay within that format? Never going out and saying, I this, or, or this other person that, but saying you, always returning it back to God. Fascinating re reading. It's probably the first autobiography in history. I don't think many, you know, we know these days about an autobiography. This is probably the first. It's an extended testimony of how he came to faith in Christ, but it's more than that. Uh, on Christian doctrine, you could read as well. I've got some of these, and if some of you are interested in borrowing them, I'd be happy to loan them to you. Um, it's part of the series, the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers. Um, but we've got confession. You can get confessions in paperback form. It's never been out of print. never will be. So you can just go down to the bookstore and pick that up with no trouble at all. But some of these other things are harder to find, and if you'd be interested in reading some of them. The Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love is his best attempt at systematic, systematic theology. And as a matter of fact, most of the Western universities took his structure and his organization out of that book and organized their uh, departments of theology from that. Uh, on the Trinity, realize this is right after the whole struggle on the deity of Christ was finished uh, with Athanasius and Arianism, uh, the whole doctrine of the deity of Christ, which we still face today with the Jehovah's Witnesses. We still deal with that issue of the deity of Christ. It was Augustine that first really organized and systematized the doctrine of the Trinity. And then finally, the city of God, as we've talked about. Now, what I'd like to do at this point is to just give an overview of his life. Just go through it. And in that, we're going <clears> to <throat> we're gonna be talking about his conversion. Most of my comments tonight, uh, just the, the course of them, are coming from a book uh, written by John Piper, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy. And, he's, and he talks here about um, the doctrine of grace in the life of um, Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. So um, this is an excellent resource if you want to read uh, about it. It's very readable and very easy to understand. And he's just tracing out this theme of sovereign joy. Augustine was born in 354 uh, A.D., November 13th, in uh, North Africa, Numidia. Uh, his family, his father, was, uh, was a Roman, Patricius. Um, he was kind of a middle-income kind of guy. Uh, he had a fiery temper. Uh, he was a pagan his whole life until the very end. And he gave his life to Christ. He submitted to baptism on his deathbed. So uh, he waited a long time. And really a tragic thing, if you think about what his life could have been if he had just yielded um, to Christ earlier. His mother, Monica, is one of the great heroines of church history. She's one of the greatest examples of a godly mother. Every mother, I think, every Christian mother, their number one concern for their children is that they might know Christ. Of what uh, John said in Second John or uh, Third John, verse four, he said, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth." Well, that was true of his spiritual children, those he'd led to Christ. But it's true of a mother, isn't it? You, all you that are mothers, wouldn't you say that's your number one desire is to see your kids walking with the Lord? 
Well, Monica did not have that blessing for most of her life. Her children were all in rebellion against Christ. Her husband waited until his deathbed to come to Christ. But Augustine brought incessant grief to his mother, Monica, and she just prayed and prayed and prayed and wept over him through all of his phases. We're going to talk about his phases. She threw him out of his, out of her house when he was a manichee, uh, cause that was, uh, uh, that was heresy. He was promoting heresy and that was not going to happen in her house. But she wept over him. She went to a bishop to ask for advice. Uh, and just, she was somewhat like the hound of heaven, uh, pursuing her son everywhere he went. You know, it wasn't long before mom showed up and wanted to stay with him. And so he'd pray, I mean, she'd pray for him right in his hearing. He'd, she'd weep for, uh, Augustine in his hearing, and, and she's a major player in the in the confessions. Then my mother, Monica, showed up, and well, you know, she just keeps popping up with her prayers. She's one of the great heroes, and I think it's just a word to Christian mothers: never give up, just keep praying. There's there's a tremendous power in the prayer of a mother. Uh, in his upbringing, uh, his father, as I said, was a middle income farmer. He wanted to provide an education for his son, but didn't really have many resources to do it. He focused on rhetoric, the ability to speak. He figured he could make a living with that. It was important in Roman life. But it wasn't long before the son, about 16 years old, Augustine became dissolute in his habits, became immoral. And his family did nothing to stop him. This is what Augustine writes in his confessions. He said, As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with a desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures. My family made no effort to save me from my fall by marriage. Their only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech and how to persuade others by words. Now, it's interesting. He includes his mother in that. So it could be that she became more zealous as time went on and started to see the effect of sin in her son's life. But early on, she didn't make much of an impact on him. Father was even worse. Uh, he said, My father took no trouble at all to see how I was growing in your sight, O God, or whether I was chaste or not. He cared only that I should have a fertile tongue. So he just wanted to give his son an education, and he had absolutely no interest whatsoever in um, spiritual things. Well, it wasn't long before he was openly struggling with sin, wrestling with it. He left for Carthage uh, to study for he left Carth Carthage to study for three years. His mother warned him against fornication and especially against seducing another man's wife. All right, uh, he'd already had some problems with that, and the uh, Book of Proverbs warns you that the husband will never be mollified. You know, if you take his wife, he's going to come after you. He may even kill you. And so Monica was fearing for his son's physical life, not just his spiritual life, and just warned him against his sexual immorality. But uh, when he arrived at Carthage, he was burning with lust. This is what he said. I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. My real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. Isn't that powerful? He said, I, I didn't even know what I needed, but I kept looking in all the wrong ways. He was uh, surrounded by an immoral society and he was immoral himself. He was responding to those temptations and there was nothing he could do about it. And he said, I needed you, God, but I didn't know it. I was not aware of what my true hunger was. He was successful in rhetoric, but um, it was empty to him. It didn't really provide anything for him. At that point, he took a concubine in Carthage who was with him for 15 years and she bore him a son. Adeodatus was his name. A gift of God is what the name means. Uh, this concubine is one of the tragic figures in, of, of his life. Um, as was kind of common uh, in that culture, her name would not have been important, and he didn't write her, her name even once in all his writings. You know, he wrote over 250 books. Confessions was his spiritual autobiography. He mentions her. He mentions his incredible love for her. 
when she finally, uh, when he sent her away so that he could marry, we'll talk about that um, in a moment, it crushed him, he said. It, it really, uh, he loved her, but uh, we don't know her name and, uh, and what ended up happening to her. When he was finally, when she was finally sent away, she told him that she had made a vow to God that she would never uh, sleep with another man. So it may have been that she went into a, uh, a convent or something, some kind of service to God at that point. A very tragic situation, uh, but it also shows his immorality. Um, in that he didn't just take her as a wife. Um, he was a teacher of rhetoric from age, age 19 to 30. Uh, and so John Piper sums up his life. He was a profligate until he was 31 and a celibate until he was 75. So it's just a, a just day and night uh, change that happened in his life. Now we begin to look at his conversion. Now when you're telling stories about people, you know, in the pulpit or whatever. You have to take these stories and just make them really pithy. You've got about a minute to get it across and it's so neat and tidy. It really wasn't that way with Augustine. You know the story about take and read, take and read, the children's rhyme and all that. We'll, talk, we'll go over that again. But, I mean, that's the moment of conversion. But there was a long, long journey up to that point. Um, as I said, when he went to Carthage, he was just seething with lust. He was, he was an openly immoral kind of person. Um, but it was at age 19 he started to read Cicero's Hortensius. Now, Cicero was a pagan writer. There's nothing of God in Cicero at all. And we don't have Hortensius. doesn't exist anymore. The only thing we know about it is from Augustine. But it probably was a kind of an introduction to philosophy. And uh, as he read it, he started... It was almost like a conversion for him. And it got him out of an openly, daily, immoral life. At that point, he started trying to be a moral person by reading Cicero. And so it's kind of interesting how God brought him step by step into faith in Christ. But the first step was to get him away from that immoral lifestyle. And he used philosophy to do it. He used Cicero. But it wasn't long after that that he was drawn into Manichaeism. Now, you may have absolutely no idea what Manichaeism is, but uh, to some degree, uh, some people trace the origins of Buddhism uh, and some aspects of Buddhism to this guy, Manny, the prophet Manny. It's a dualistic system in which there is good and there is evil, and the two have nothing to do with each other, um, that God is pure and holy and perfect. He's the king of the kingdom of light and has absolutely nothing to do with evil whatsoever. He didn't create anything evil. Now, it sounds good, except that you understand, therefore, that evil comes from a, a, a an evil kingdom that has invaded God's good kingdom. And God basically can't do anything about it. It's a dualistic system in which you basically have a good kingdom and an evil kingdom fighting each other all the time. And so the evil kingdom is every bit as powerful and every bit as eternal as the good kingdom. So it's dualism. The physical world is evil. Physical bodies are evil. The Old Testament is an emanation of the evil kingdom and therefore it's to be rejected. All right, they, they read it and it was just, they considered it an emanation of, of basically it was the evil God pers- uh, kind of taking on a, a guise as the good God. But if you read between the cracks, you can see the problems. And so they, the prophet Manny rejected the Old Testament. So they rejected that. Uh, Augustine was attracted to the basic idea that the struggle within him was basically not his problem to some degree. It's kind of like he had an evil uh, an evil splinter that had entered his soul. And if he could just get that out, he would return to his basically good nature. And you can see why that's attractive. It's kind of like, it's not me. You know, it's just this thing that I've taken in. If I could just get it out, I will be pure and holy and perfect. And it was attractive. And, it, and that 
whole approach was uh, very popular in North Africa. It was a cult, a heresy, and uh, Monica knew it, his mother, and evicted her, evicted him from her house while he was teaching. He was basically leading people into Manichaeism. And there's one interesting story about him. He led a good friend of his, one of his best friends, into Manichaeism. He came to Christ. He, he, um, Augustine came to Christ, obviously, later on, then had to go hunt this guy down and lead him out of Manichaeism into true faith in Christ, which he did. Uh, he led his friend uh, out of the very trouble he'd gotten him into, uh, this cult, this false system. Eventually, uh, Augustine saw the falsehood of the system, but it took a long time. He became one of the leading opponents of Manichaeism and the leading spokesman, Augustine was, for a, a supreme, transcendent God who created all things and whose kingdom cannot be stopped and that evil must be understood a different way than that. That basically we have a biblical understanding of evil that it came in. God did not create it, but God is sovereign and powerful over it and can end it any time he chooses, just like Jesus cast out demons. All right. At age 29, he moved from Carthage to Rome to teach. Uh, soon became fed up with his students. Some of you are teachers. You've probably been fed up with your students before. He couldn't handle them anymore. They were unruly. They were probably a lot like he was when he was younger. Uh, but uh, he moved on uh, and ended up at a teaching post in Milan. Now, Milan is in North Italy, uh, kind of up near Switzerland and France, the corner of Italy up there. And it was at Milan that two important things happened to him, two key things. He was introduced to Neoplatonism, and he was introduced to Ambrose, the bishop of Milan. Two important things. Now, why was Neoplatonism Neo important? Well, Platonism, Neoplatonism came in with this man Plotinus who came in around 250 or so A.D. and kind of reheated some old Platonism. Now, Platonism, after Plato, is the closest that Greek philosophy ever got to true biblical doctrine about God. A one transcendent God who created all things, who is good and righteous, sovereign over all things, cannot be known except that he reveals himself uh, Plato had a, f a famous illustration of the cave and that we're looking at shadows, the you know, it's emanations of God's light. Very famous thing. Neoplatonism kind of took that and kind of reheated it. All right. And uh, basically the idea on uh, Neoplatonism that is wrong, all that sounds right. The wrong is that the physical world is inherently evil. And so the way you deal with evil, the way you deal with, for example, lust, uh, you know, sins of the flesh is that you uh, go through a pattern or a program of, of total self-denial because the body is itself evil. So you have to discipline your body because the body's evil. But you realize we're getting step by step closer and closer, aren't we? All right. Uh, we go from utter gross immorality to reading a philosopher like Cicero. All right. And so he stops that daily stuff, but he's still... You know, he's still a sinner, obviously. From there, he goes into Manichaeism, a step closer, but still more dangerous because it's a cult. From there, into Neoplatonism. And meanwhile, on Sundays, he's listening to Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, who is a solid Bible preacher. An expository preacher, I might add. Preaching faithfully, text by text. And so, Augustine was listening to him uh, week after week. Ambrose is one of the most gifted and also one of the most courageous preachers of his day. I don't want to get into Ambrose right now, but he's a hero of the faith. Um, he had incredible courage, and there, were, there was need for it. Um, for example, he was surrounded at one point by a bunch of Arians, people who believed that Jesus was not uh, truly God. And they had an army, and they were ordering Ambrose to give over the keys of the city and the authority over his congregation and his flock, and he refused to do, do so, even though they threatened his life. This was around the same time 
that Augustine was there. So he saw the courage of Ambrose. He also listened to him week after week. And this is what he wrote about Ambrose. It says, In Milan, I found your devoted servant, the Bishop Ambrose. At that time, his gifted tongue, never tired of dispensing the richness of your corn, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me, it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. So week after week, he's listening to true biblical doctrine being preached by Ambrose. Now, he's also scandalized. His Neoplatonism is scandalized by Ambrose preaching, as he did wisely, on John chapter 1. The Word became what? Flesh. What in the world is that? Why would the Word of God want to become flesh? Uh, but that's the very issue where biblical Christianity diverts from Neoplatonism and all those dualistic systems in which the physical world is intrinsically evil. It isn't. But the real issue then in the physical world is self-control. And it's a self-control that only God can give you. And that's so he's getting step by step closer, but he's dealing with his lusts. And he felt the way to deal with it was to totally deny the physical body, that the body was evil and wicked. But Ambrose is preaching biblical doctrine. And the word became flesh. And that was big wrench thrown into the cogs there at that point. Why in the world would God become flesh? And he's still controlled by his lust. At that point, his mother Monica had arranged a society marriage for him to a fine, upstanding Roman girl. And uh, the rules on the marriage were that he would... Uh, the, the marriage date was set two years after the uh, contract was signed. So, uh, And part of the deal was he had to put away his concubine. She had to leave. And so he did, although it, it was he said it was like a Taurus heart out. Uh, Adeodatus, his son, stayed with him, but she was sent to back to North Africa. And as far as I know, he never saw her again. Very tragic situation. But meanwhile, he's got to make it two years in sexual purity. Uh, well, he's incapable of doing that. It's just uh, he's unable. And uh, it wasn't long before he had found another mistress and uh, was sleeping with her. So just unfaithful uh, and just struggling with this issue of lust. Well, at this point, we're ready for his conversion. Now, I've told his conversion story, I think, three times, but I'll tell it again. It's a good story. Um, basically, what happened was he went back to Carthage, um, and he was with a, he was having discussions with his friend. I haven't told you this, but his friend was talking about the life of Antony, uh, and Antony was the father of, um, the, uh, of Egyptian uh, monasticism. He was the guy that went out in the desert and wrestled with the devil, you know, and conquered the sins of the flesh, that kind of thing. And they were talking about the purity of his life and the way that he was able to conquer his sins. And the more that they talked, the more convicted Augustine felt um, about his sinful lifestyle. And he didn't know what to do, and he was just wrestling with issues uh, over conquering his sin. And he was sitting in a garden, and uh, there was it was a beautiful lush garden and on the bench uh, near him though he didn't see it at the time was a Bible and it was open to a certain passage and as he was sitting he said he was physically hunched over and he was pulling his hair out and rocking back and forth he was just in anguish over his soul he really was under conviction by the Holy Spirit uh, frankly after all the preaching he'd heard from Ambrose he just knew that he was lost and he was showing that by the by his struggles with sexual sin and it was uh, 386, late August. Augustine was almost 32 years old. And uh, this is what he writes. He says, O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled 
and from my slavery to the things of this world. He gives credit to God. He said, God, you freed me from it. You released me from it. So he's sitting there. He's rocking back and forth. He's pulling his hair out and he hears this little children's rhyme coming from over the wall. The children are playing and they are singing in a sing-songy way a little rhyme. And it said in the, in the Latin, take it, read, take it up and read over and over. Take and read, take and read. And he said, as I was thinking, I remembered my childhood and I remember how I used to play games and I even knew that rhyme. And yet I felt, and he's speaking to God, his confession, I felt that you were speaking to me. So I started to look around the garden and what does he see? There's a book over there on the bench. He walks over and he takes it up and he reads it. And it's open to Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. It says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And at that moment, he realized what God was saying to him, that he was enslaved to sin, but that God had the power to free him from that. And he gave his life to Christ at that time. He traveled back to Milan and was baptized by Ambrose, Easter of 387. That must have been an incredibly joyous situation. He was converted. Now, we're going to talk more about how God freed him from the lust in particular, but you can see... As we look back over what God did to save Augustine, all the steps he brought him through. He brought him from open immorality to pagan philosophy to a pseudo-Christian cult to the height of Greek uh, philosophy, Platonism, uh, to hearing the Word of God week by week from Ambrose of Milan to a personal and saving faith in Christ. Now, this is my point. I believe that God wastes nothing. All of those experiences were useful in his later life, in his ministry, in dealing with Manichaeism and Donatism and all the things that he faced. Everything was useful. And eventually, when the time was right, he came to faith in Christ. I think it's a marvelous story. Now, as he was reflecting on that, he wrote a great deal about the issue of will, the free will, and do we have the power to say no to our lusts? and a great deal of struggle over that. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, basically, in effect, he believes that sovereign grace took hold of his soul and gave him the joy of Jesus Christ expelling the power of the lust over him. Without something expelling it, I mean something better to take its place, it's just going to come back. But it was Jesus Christ that expelled it. We're going to talk more about that. Well, what happened from that point? Well, he returned to Carthage. He became a priest and then a bishop. Um, right before he left Italy, his mother Monica died. Uh, I can't even imagine the joy that must have come in her heart to see her son baptized. And it wasn't long after that that, um, that she died. And this is what Augustine wrote about that. We did by degrees, speaking of he and his mother, we did by degrees pass through all things bodily, even the very heaven whence sun and moon and stars shine upon the earth. Yea, we are soaring higher yet by inward musing and discourse and admiring of your works, O Lord. And we came to our own minds and went beyond them that we might arrive at that region of never-failing plenty where you feed Israel forever with the food of truth and where life is the wisdom by whom all these things are made. So they were discussing heaven as she was ready to, ready to die. And what a conversation that must have been. And so she died and she went to be with the Lord. Sadly, though, soon after that, his son, uh, Adiodatus, died as well. He was an adolescent and also his best friend. All of them, the three of them, his mother, his son, and his best friend died in the course of a short amount of time. 
So he was very lonely and all this did was drive him closer to God. He sailed to Carthage in 391. He went to Hippo. The bishop there, Valerius, knew of him. He was actually very famous because he was uh, uh, just the circles he ran in and the training he had had. Uh, he was well known as a as a speaker and everyone had heard about his relationship with Ambrose and how he had been baptized. So Valerius is up there and he's preaching and he notices Augustine come in and sit down. And he looks out in the congregation and he decides to scrap his sermon and he's going to preach on the need for priests in Hippo. We need more priests, basically. Well, why is he doing that? He's, he's recruiting Augustine, but he's not speaking to Augustine. He's speaking to the people. And in effect, he's saying, if you know anyone that would be gifted or that God could use in some mighty way, well, they look around, they notice him and they know who he is and they stand up and they start kind of en masse persuading him to become a priest. And he started to cry. And he was weeping and they thought he was crying because he really wanted to be a bishop. Um, and he's really weeping because he didn't want to be a priest. It was the last thing he wanted to do at that point. But the people persuaded him and saying, well, in, in good time, you'll get to be a bishop. They totally misunderstood why he was crying, but he felt it was from the Lord. And uh, he did become a priest. Uh, Valerius was a very shrewd man, this bishop. He knew the church in North Africa needed someone to fight the heresies that they were facing, Manichaeism and Donatism. And uh, he knew that Augustine was the, he was the man. Preaching was ordinarily the sole province of bishops. Only bishops preached. But he allowed um, Augustine to preach because of his gifts. And he also prevailed upon the archbishop in that area to make him kind of co-bishop, even though that wasn't ordinarily done. It wasn't long after that that Valerius died. And uh, Augustine was the sole bishop of Hippo. And he continued there until his death. So he basically covered his whole life in terms of the events, the major events of his life. But now I want to uh, pull out that theme or that, that issue of sovereign joy. There were three great controversies that Augustine faced in his life. He was a controversialist. He was constantly writing against people. And I say three, there are actually over 80 different groups that he wrote against in his life and, and that he dealt with. Remember what I've said to you before, that the three great attacks of the, uh, of the devil on the church are... Uh, say again. No, please. False doctrine. Persecution. Worldliness. Sins of the world. Yes. Um, and I've said that there's one of those three that's universally applicable. It's everywhere, and that's false doctrine. Okay? But that persecution and worldliness tend to be mutually exclusive. It's usually one or the other. If the surrounding society is favorable to the church, the church will struggle with worldliness. If the surrounding society is ad adversely related to the church, the church will have to face persecution. But false teachings everywhere, and it needs to be dealt with. And so he was constantly dealing with false teaching. Uh, Manichaeism, we've already discussed. Donatism was huge in North Africa. The basic idea of Donatism, remember that this isn't very long after the Roman Empire had persecuted the church. The surrounding culture was not favorable to the church, but actually were persecuting, arresting, and killing Christians. And during those persecutions, some Christian leaders, bishops or others, in order to save their lives, handed over the scriptures to the Roman uh, authorities. Now, how big is that? Realize, where do the scriptures come from? Well, they're copied by hand. These things are unspeakably precious. And they're called traditores, those that handed over the scriptures. Well, after the persecutions died down or then the Roman Empire became more favorable, they wanted their posts back. And there was a real problem uh, with this. Some people really felt that any 
any church that had one of these traitor-type bishops was not a true church. And so the Donatism sprang up around the idea of, of a true and pure church that never gave in in the times of persecution. And the idea of papal succession or succession of bishops, that if you have a break in the line, if there's a bad bishop in the line, the, the church from there on out is bad. You see what I'm saying? And so we want to be a pure church. And, and if you trace it up to one of those traitor bishops, uh, then you're in a bad church. You need to come with us. So it was, it, Donatism is a very, very powerful uh, group in North Africa. And it was um, Augustine that wrote it against uh, them the most. But his number one struggle was the struggle with Pelagianism. Now, I believe with R.C. Sproul that the evangelical church, the Christian church today, is still in the captivity to Pelagianism or perhaps semi-Pelagianism. It's a struggle we're facing even up to this present day. What it is is an overconfidence or an overinflation of what human beings can do. Uh, it's a focus on human beings' ability at any time to decide right or wrong for him or herself at any time. Total, complete free will. Now, is that reality? Well, that's the whole thing. That's what Pelagius was dealing with and that's what Augustine was dealing with. Very, very relative, um, irrelevant to what we're facing today. Now, the statement that he made that set Pelagius off, and it was Pelagius reading the confessions. He read them and said, this is wrong, this is false. And it was in Confessions chapter 10, or book 10, chapter 29. This is what this is what Augustine wrote. He's talking about lust. And he says, And my, my whole hope is only in your exceeding great mercy. Give what you command and command whatever you will. That's Augustinian doctrine. Basically, God, you command me to be pure, make me pure. You see that? That's huge. You command me to be sexually pure, then make me sexually pure. Because I can't do it. I've been struggling all my life. Give what you command and then command whatever you will. You impose sexual purity on us. Nevertheless, when I perceived, said someone, that I could not otherwise obtain her except that God gave her to me, that was a point of wisdom also to know whose gift she was. O charity, my God, kindle me. You command sexual purity. Give what you command and command what you will. Well, that's the essence of the Augustinian doctrine of grace. Pelagius said, this is awful. This is heresy. Basically, the bottom line with Pelagius is he, he, did, he denied original sin. He said that we are not, we, we have no sin nature. We have the freedom at any time to choose to do right and wrong. And that basically everything comes to us balanced this way, good and evil, and that we kind of cast the deciding vote at, 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 at any given moment. We're free to do that. And so God's commands come to us and we're responsible for them. When he commands sexual purity of us, it's up to us to do it. It's not his job to work sexual purity in us. He's given the command. It's our job to do it. Now, if this sounds like it makes a lot of sense to you, understand why I said to you that Pelagianism is an issue that we're struggling with even to this very day. It's still with us. The key concept here, I think, is the idea of sovereign joy. What is it that really gives somebody power to turn away from lust? What is it that really conquers sin? This is what Augustine wrote. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? Interesting question. What was, what was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? Remember Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He said, where was free will all that time? 
All those years I was burning with lust, where was it? It should have been running to help me submit to your easy yoke. Where was it? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He was afraid to give up that pleasure. He said what joy it was to lose those fruitless joys which I had once so feared to lose. You drove them from me. Who is he talking to when he says that? You drove them from me. <laughs> you who are the true, the sovereign joy. He calls God the sovereign joy. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You stood in their place, God. You drove away my lusts and you stood in their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light and yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Confessions, book 9, section 1. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, you know what gave me power to say no to lust? You did, God. You took its place. I started to find my joy in you. I found pleasure in you. And it gave me power to say no the rest of my life. That's Augustinian grace. The basic idea of grace in, in Augustine is God's giving us sovereign joy that triumphs powerfully over sin. Now, he talks a lot about the way that God made his way miserable in sin. Does God do that? Does he make your way miserable when you go into sin? Absolutely he does. He turns the knobs up on you. And, and especially if you're a Christian, you decide, decide to venture off into the way you shouldn't go. Don't expect that God's just going to sit back there. Why? Because he wants you to know joy. I have written these things that you may have joy. Jesus said, I have, he said, I have told you these things that in me you may have joy, may have peace. These are the things that God wants to give you. And he's a ruler, he's a king, and he's going to give them to you. And he works them in a powerful way. God sovereignly works in us that we delight in him above all other sources of pleasure. This drives sin away from us. Is it enough, just enough to say, this is a bad thing, I must stop doing it? Does that work? I don't think so. This is a bad thing. I must stop eating it. <laughs> You've got to have something to take its place, right? That's, I mean, it's just, it's just one of these things. Thomas Chalmers uh, wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a Greater Desire, a Greater Affection. What works with morality is to have something drive out the very thing that you're, you know, something that takes its place. And in this, ultimately, it's God. Augustine knew that all people strive constantly for their own happiness. What guides and governs the will is the natural yearning for happiness, what we consider to be our delight. Isn't that true? Don't you kind of at every moment do things that bring you happiness as you believe they will? And if you analyze yourself, you look inwardly and look at all the decisions you make, all of them lead to some happiness at some point for yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way you are. What I think is love is to find your happiness in someone else's happiness. You see what I'm talking about? You find your delight in someone else's delight. That's what God is instructing. Not that you find no delight. Now, we've talked about this before. Suppose a husband gave roses to his wife and said, I know it's our anniversary and I want to give you these 12 roses. I want you to understand that I take no pleasure whatsoever in giving these to you, but I want you to have them. This is all about you. This is about your pleasure. So here, how would you feel if you're a wife receiving the dutiful roses? Would that be a delight to you? No, he needs to enjoy giving them to you, doesn't he? So love is that I find my pleasure in someone else's pleasure. I find my delight in someone else's delight, right? 
So the idea that we are seeking happiness and pleasure is not a wrong thing. God made us that way. Right? But what he says is we strive for what we consider to be our, our delight. Piper put it this way. Here's the catch that made Pelagius so angry. Augustine believed that it's not in our power to determine what this delight will be. Do you hear what I just said? We can't choose our delight. If we're left to choose, we'll keep choosing sin and we'll keep choosing it and choosing it and choosing it forever until we're done. Basically, we can't choose to change our delights. All right? Instead, what has to happen is sovereign joy has to come in. Grace has to come in and transform what we delight in so that what we didn't delight in before, suddenly we delight in now. And that's Jesus Christ. And this is what Augustine wrote. Who has it in his power to have such a motive present to his mind that his will shall be influenced to believe? Who can welcome in his mind something which does not give him delight? But who has it in his power to ensure that something that will delight him will turn up? or that he will delight in what turns up. Do you really have pleasure to change the things you delight in? How many of you enjoy watching basketball? How many of you are into it? How many of you have a team you root for? How many of those of you that have a team you root for have a team you would never root for in a million years? Never. I'm not going to go into which team is which. I'm just saying. You just will. Can you change your delights? Can you? Can you, of your own free will, just... Root for the other team. No? <laughs> You've tried and you just can't do it. Um, uh, well, That's what I'm saying. It's just a, a homely example to say, do we really have control over our delights? Do we have control over the things that we enjoy? I don't think so. I think instead that we have to come as spiritual beggars and say, God, I know I should delight in you. Give it to me. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I believe that the whole issue that we're, we're touching on here is a very, very deep one. I think, if, if I could go back to your question, I want to show you how Augustinian grace ends up transcending the issue of choice. I think we do make choices, but he just went way beyond uh, the whole thing. Let me, let me describe how he describes the choosing, the so-called free will, and then I'll come back to your question. And if you're not satisfied, you can, ask a, uh, you can come back with another question. Um, that's, that's excellent. We'll, we, we will get, get to that in a second. Uh, another quote he gives us here is, A man's free will, indeed, avails for nothing except to sin. You can choose the way to sin, but you can't choose the way out of sin, is what he's saying. Um, it inv- avails for nothing except to sin if he knows not the way of truth, and even after his duty and his proper aim shall begin to become known to him, unless he also takes delight in and feels a love for it, he neither does his duty nor sets about it nor lives it rightly. Now, in order that such a course may engage our affections, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. That's Romans 5. Not through the free will which arises from ourselves, but through the Holy Spirit which he has given us. Romans 5.5. 5. When the Spirit comes in our life, he sheds the love of God into our hearts and we start to love God. That's conversion. That's being born again, right? Born of the Spirit. Now, what is freedom? Oh, wait, wait, one more thing. Uh, somebody asked, why do you spend so much time battling Pelagius? And this is what he answered. I love this answer. First and foremost, I battle Pelagius because no subject but grace gives me greater pleasure. I enjoy talking about grace. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace, grace by which we are healed? For us lazy men than grace, grace by which we are stirred up? For us men longing to act than grace, grace by which we are helped? So grace ends up being your theme, your song. The thing you want to talk about all the time is that God 
uh, God was gracious, etc. Now, what is freedom? For Pelagius, uh, this is where I think I'm going to get to General Birch's um, question. For Pelagius, freedom was a perfect balance between good and evil presented to the sovereign human will, which alone had power to cast the deciding vote. So basically, you're moving your life through this balanced situation in which you're kind of clunking your choice thing down and then you make your next choice, good or evil, and you just move through that way. And every it's just perfectly balanced at every time and you cast the deciding vote by your sovereign free will. That's what Pelagius taught in a nutshell. Um, but freedom for Augustine is this, to be so much in love with God and his ways that the very experience of choice itself is transcended. The ideal of freedom is not so much the autonomous will poised with sovereign equilibrium between good and evil. The idea of freedom is to be so spiritually discerning of God's beauty and to be so in love with God that one never stands with equilibrium between God and an alternate choice. Rather, one transcends the experience of choice and walks under the continual sway of the sovereign joy of God. Let me actually flesh out how I think it works. I've used this illustration before, but because I think it's a good one, I'll use it many times in the future again. It has to do with the resurrection of Lazarus. When, when Jesus Christ spoke to Lazarus and said to him, Lazarus, come forth. Before he said that, what was Lazarus's condition? Dead. Now, what motivation would you use to move Lazarus? How would you persuade him, Herbert, to move? Huh? Dynamite. Dynamite would move him in many different ways. That's true. You could drag him. You could haul him. You could get some friends, whatever. Could you persuade him to move? No. Why couldn't you persuade him to move? Because he's dead. Okay. Did Jesus persuade him to move? Well, no, he didn't. Notice that he didn't. What he did was he gave him a command. What was the command that Jesus gave Lazarus? Come out of the tomb. But he did more than just give him a command. See, you could have given him a command, but you would have been lacking something that Jesus had. All right? What would you have lacked, Herbert, that Jesus had? Power. power. Right. Okay. So Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, but also gives power behind the command. Now, here comes the moment of choice, the moment of free will. Okay. Lazarus now has a choice before him, doesn't he? Okay. He can stay in the tomb or he can come out and be with Jesus. Right? Isn't that a valid choice? He could stay in the tomb or come out and be with Jesus. Okay. Stay in the tomb. Cold. Stinks. You know, wrapped up with these grave clothes. Be with Jesus. Big celebration feast. Sunny, all my friends hugging and kissing and crying. Mm, you know, is it a choice? Yeah, it's a choice. But is it worth talking about the choice? I'd rather talk about the fellowship meal and the enjoyment they had in being together after that. Choice itself has become transcended. It's what choice was meant to do. How many people, having been raised from the dead at that moment, would choose to stay in the tomb? Would you? Well, you know yourself. I'm not going to guess. I think most of you would want to come out of the tomb. Yes. I had never heard that. That may that may well be what he's thinking. I think for all of you who are wrestling with this, and we're not going to solve it tonight, but understand who made us, who made our brain, who made our choosing process. Who knows us better than anyone? Who knows what kinds of things are going to be choosable, eminently choosable? You see what I'm saying? You come to a certain fork in the road and one side looks absolutely delectable and delicious and the other looks horrendous and horrible to you, you're going to go in a certain direction. You will choose what's in, uh, what's in accordance with your nature. And so it was in accordance with the nature of Lazarus to not want to be in that tomb anymore and to be with his friend Jesus. It was in accordance with his nature to do that. And God knows that. And I believe it is in the essence of our nature to be with God. It's what we're made for. And what comes in here is sin 
perverts everything. So you exchange the glory of God for lust and, and, and television and internet and all kinds of stuff that just doesn't, doesn't do it. It doesn't satisfy. And, and, it, and instead, God says, this is what you're made for. And the, the light clears. And Augustine from then on chose God. Again and again he chose God, but he didn't talk about how he chose God because he was made for that. Instead, he talked about being with God. He talked about the love that made that choice possible. So I believe we make those choices, just like Lazarus made the choice that day to come out of the tomb. Have you ever heard anyone talk about Lazarus's choice before? I mean, other than me? Lazarus's choice. I mean, it's, it's almost ludicrous to talk about Lazarus's choice. I mean, yes, he made a choice. I'm not denying that he chose. I'm just saying, what else would he have chosen? To stay in the tomb or to come be with Jesus? And isn't that, in effect, the salvation choice? Hmm, I can continue burning with lust and, and all the kind of things I've been hating all my life. He was struggling to find a way out, wasn't he? Cicero and Neoplatonism and anything, something. Because the wages of sin is death and you feel the death in you. He wanted freedom. At last he found the way and he found the way in Christ. So he, he made that choice. It's a salvation choice, but it's Lazarus's choice. It's the choice to come be with him. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, we can get into debate about whether he was going to refuse that command or not. It was a command. I think it's very interesting that it was a command. Um, and Lazarus did obey. But um, we can talk more about this. Um, I think what I'm getting at here is the sovereign joy and the expulsive power of grace. What is it that chases sin and lust and evil out? It is the power of the joy of God. It is the grace of God, Jesus Christ. It's a greater desire. It's a better affection. It's the only thing that has power to do it in your life. And if you're struggling with sins, if there are things in your life, if you keep making that exchange for something earthly rather than something eternal, realize it's the grace of God alone that will enable you to make the correct change, exchange. Not, not exchange the glory of God for something earthly. The one final thing I want to say here is to talk about Augustine the mystic. Sovereign joy takes its deepest roots in the man or woman whose constant hunger and desire is after God and God alone. This desire can only be fostered in one seeking God by prayer and meditation on his word, what they called the life of the mystic. Now, we can be mystics. I don't think you have to be in a monastery to be one. I think I'm really just talking about your quiet time. I'm talking about Daniel. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Was Daniel a mystic? Was he a visionary? Oh, absolutely, by almost any definition you could come up with. But this is what Augustine said. The soul of men shall hope under the shadow of your wings. They shall be made drunk with the fullness of your house and the torrents of your pleasures you will give them to drink. For in you is the fountain of life and in your light shall we see light. Give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me the one who yearns. Give me the one who is hungry. Give me one far away in this desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man. He knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he does not know what I'm talking about. So I guess what I'm exhorting you to do is to become a mystic. You might want to go to God and say, you know, we, we had a time tonight to talk about a passionate love relationship with you and I don't see that passion in my heart. You command me to be passionate after you. Give me what you've commanded. Does he not command in Scripture that we hunger and thirst for God, that we pant for him like, like a deer panting for streams of water? If you don't find yourself that way, then ask God to give it to you. Blessed are the spiritual beggars for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's all yours if you ask Him for it. And stay there until He gives it to you. And keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. 
and he will give it to you. This is the sovereign joy. And you're going to wonder why you waited so long. Just like Augustine, after 32 years of burning with lust, said, what a waste. What a waste. All the time I could have been with Jesus Christ. All the time I could have been loving and knowing him. Are there any questions about what we covered tonight? General Birch, was that a beginning to it? I mean, it's a deep, deep question. Well, I'm not there yet either. I mean, I don't have the words to answer that one. I mean, we've been wrestling with it. But I like the Lazarus picture because it includes both his choice but also the inevitability of the choice. It was obvious and reasonable. Just like if there are a bunch of of hornets in here in this corner of the room, you'd all be persuaded of your own free will to run out. Um, You know, yeah, I mean, there's persuasion out there and God is able to persuade. Any other questions? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.